Hey, Chapel Street Church, as you know, over the last several weeks, we've been partnering together with our kids in VBS to support a ministry called Cure. Cure is an amazing ministry that's putting first world hospitals in developing countries all over the globe, but the one we're supporting is in Zambia, in Africa. My wife and I actually had the privilege and joy of being in Zambia and seeing firsthand the work of Cure Zambia and the way that they're not only providing life-changing surgeries for these children and families, but also the great spiritual care that they're loving on them and teaching them the love of God in Christ. They're, it's a wonderful ministry. We're thrilled to partner with them. Our goal is to raise $150,000, and I'm thrilled to tell you we're already more than two-thirds of the way to our goal. So I know we're going to hit the goal. But more than the number of or the, the dollars raised is we want every Chapel Streeter to take part in this. Because every one of you who gives of whatever amount, your money goes to support Cure and other Serve the World partners just like them. Let me tell you a little bit about Cure. Part of our goal and what we're raising is to pay the salary of a surgeon for a year. We met one of these surgeons when we were there, my wife and I. His name is Dr. Jimmy. He was one of the top orthopedic uh, surgeons for children in the UK. And we talked to him about his story and why he would choose to leave that lucrative profession where he was highly regarded to come to the middle of nowhere Zambia. And he said, I'm replaceable in the UK. There are so many surgeons highly trained just like me. But here, I feel like I'm irreplaceable and God's using me in a, in a different way. And so we got to be with him in the operating room while he operated on a little girl named Catherine, repairing her club feet. To see the change in her physical body, what happened in her mother's life, the celebration of the staff and other families that were there was remarkable. And not only that, but surgeons like Dr. Jimmy are not just doing the surgeries, they're training Zambian doctors to do the same. And so when we give to support this salary, it has exponential impact in ways you can scarcely imagine. And I wanna encourage you, Perhaps you've never given to Chapel Street Church or to the work of God anywhere. This is the perfect opportunity because every dollar we give goes to cure and then above and beyond that to all of our Serve the World partners who are also doing remarkable ministry. So let's come together and finish our goal of $150,000 and go above and beyond because we serve a God who has does above and beyond all we could ask or imagine. Thanks for being part of the generosity journey here at Chapel Street Church. What Pastor Jeff did not mention, I don't think in that video, is that we're running that campaign for the Cure uh, Ministry through the end of July. So if you haven't jumped in yet, would like to, you, you can just write Serve the World on a check and drop it in the generosity boxes in the back or go online to our website or through the app and just make sure you pick the Serve the World box. And everything we raise in July for Serve the World will go to our Cure project. So thanks for being part of that. Well, I want you to take a moment as I begin today to think back to the very first job uh, that you had as a, as a young person. Maybe the first work you did for which you were paid. Okay? Think back to your first job. How many of you uh, had that first paid job uh, and it had something to do with farming? Corn detasseling, you know, feeding the horses, something like that. Okay. Uh, how, about, how about babysitting? How many got paid for, as babysitters? Okay. Uh, how about having to do with, um, oh, how about a newspaper boy? Anybody, any newspaper people delivering newspapers? Oh, look at that, yeah. Back when everybody got a newspaper. Or how about um, in a local store, like a grocery store, cash register, stock boy, something like that? Anybody? Okay, well, my dad uh, used to say one of his first jobs, I don't think it was the first job, but one of his first jobs was uh, setting pins by hand in a bowling alley. Some of you may remember those days. Okay, yeah, so... 
somebody did it, yeah. And did you ever have this happen to you? He said he had that job until a guy kept bowling the ball too early and the pins were whacking my dad in the shins and so he bowled the ball back at the guy. <laughs> Last day on the job as the pin setter. Well, my first job was mowing the lawn. Anybody identify? Yeah, my first job was mowing the lawn. I was just six or seven years old or so, and I had a little hand-me-down um, red 20-inch two-wheeler bicycle. That was mine, and it was my pride and joy. Rode around the neighborhood, could ride around the block. But I had one job to do with that bicycle, which was I was supposed to put it away in the garage every night before dinner. And one summer evening, I forgot and did not put the bike away, left it in the front yard. Did it one time, just I forgot one time. And the next morning my bike was gone. Somebody stole my little red 20-inch bicycle from the front yard of our house on 23rd Street in Akron, Ohio. My first thought was, what kind of person steals a little kid's 20-inch bike? My second thought was, uh-oh, I'm in big trouble. Uh, my dad told me I had to earn the money, since I left it out, I had to earn the money to buy myself a new bicycle. And so he told me I could mow the grass for one dollar each time. We didn't have a big lawn, and, and that was in like 1963, so it was equal to, that's equal to like $10 today, so don't feel too bad for me. But we had one of these rotary push mowers. Remember one of those? Yeah, that's what we had. And so he showed me how to use it, and I looked up in the Sears catalog uh, the bike that I wanted. And I found a 26-inch Royal Master model with a light on it that was attached to a generator attached to one of the tires. It was the coolest thing. In fact, I looked this up. You can still find one of these on like eBay. This one was $550, okay. But it cost $56 in 1963, and it might as well have been a million. So I mowed, and I mowed, and I mowed. For most of a year, as I remember, I mowed our little lawn. And my mom says that the first day I mowed, I came in and my, my little seven-year-old hands had blisters you know, hanging from them. Um, but I really wanted that bike, so I mowed. And I still remember the day the Sears truck showed up and the back went up and they brought out my brand new bike. Awesome. Now that job didn't feel much like a gift to me at the time, uh, but it was. It taught me the value of hard work, or began to teach me that. It taught me the value of a dollar, and it taught me not to leave my bike in the yard. Now, the average American works between 80,000 uh, 80, and 100,000 hours in their lifetime. On the average, maybe 90,000 hours. And that's the equivalent of almost 11 years without eating or sleeping. Okay? Now, on average, Americans have eight jobs before, before they turn 30 and a total of 12 jobs in the course of their working lifetime. So work plays a huge role in our lives. And today, the question we want to ask is, what, what does God think about how does God care about, what does he have to say about our work? Now we're in a series, I think it's the fifth week of our series, called The Pursuit of Wisdom. We're looking into the ancient book of Proverbs for wisdom. Now remember, the Proverbs that we read are not promises exactly. They're more like principles. We said they're principles for living wisely, for living skillfully under God. So today we're going to talk about wisdom and work. And I want to begin by reading just two passages out of Proverbs. One is a single verse, and the other is a short passage. So I'm going to read first from Proverbs 14, verse 23. All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. And here's our key passage for today. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. Go to the ant, you sluggard, 
Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer, or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. The first thing I want to pull out, and and this is something that, that the Proverbs actually assume, along with the rest of Scripture, is that work matters to God. Work matters to God. Um, I've told stories about him before, but my grandfather on my mother's side was a man named Noah Sloan. We just called him Pop. Now, Pop was born in the mountains of eastern Kentucky in 1900. He never went past the eighth grade in school, and so he worked his whole life, mostly in the grocery business. Now, he came to live with our family um, toward the end of his life, Uh, when he was in his late 70s, almost 80, and beginning to struggle with uh, a form of dementia. And so since work was all Pop knew his whole life, uh, he just assumed when he came to live with us that he was coming to work for my dad. He saw my dad as the boss, and all of us were just his employees working at our home. Uh, Now my, and we talked about, he he, he couldn't talk about hardly anything else, but he could talk about work. So my brother and I were talking to, to him about work. Uh, my brother Joe and I were in college at the time, and we were both playing basketball, so we uh, worked out frequently at home and at local gyms, but one day uh, we were lifting weights in our garage, and this is central Florida, it was summertime, it was really hot, so we were working up quite a sweat, working, in our, working out in our garage, lifting weights, and Pop, uh, who was living with us, came and stood in the doorway between the kitchen and the garage. He was in the house, he opened the door, and he was standing like this, he was watching us, he watched us for a long time, we're lifting weights. He just watched for like five or ten minutes. And all of, a sudden he, all of a sudden he spoke up. He went, what y'all boys doing? And my brother said, we're working out, Pop. And he seemed to think for a good while. watching. Then he went, shoot, I do more work in a day than you boys do in a month. <laughs> Shut the door and walked back inside. From front to back, now the Bible teaches that our work matters to God. First of all, because work is from God. Genesis itself begins with an account of God's work of creation. Worked for six days and rested on the seventh. And pinnacle of his work, as we saw last year in a series on Genesis, was the creation of human beings in his image, male and female. And then we see right away, Genesis 2.15, that the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So part of God's purpose for human beings from the very beginning was work. Now, we're often tempted to think, especially today in our culture, uh, to think of work as a kind of necessary evil. That work is something that we have to do in order to pay the bills. And that the whole goal of work is to get to where you never have to work again. Now, we know that work has been cursed by sin, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But we need to see that God's original design was that we were created to work. God gave Adam and Eve a work to do in the garden before the arrival of temptation and before the fall into sin. So let me give you this biblical definition of work. Very simple. Work is participating with God in his care for the world he created. Work is participating with God in his care for the world that he created. 
So by this definition of work, it's more than what we are paid to do. And that's really important as we talk here this morning, because I'm very aware that there are a number of us in this room who have finished our working careers and are retired. Just real quick, show of hands, how many of you are retired? Okay, right. And there's nothing wrong with being retired. But that's not what the Bible's talking about. Work is not only that which we did for our job, for our career. It's more than that. It's also the work of parenting or grandparenting, the work of housekeeping, the work of mowing the yard, the work of taking out the garbage, the work of serving in and through the church. We're created to work. Work is from God. And since work is from God, work is also good. In Genesis 1, we read that God saw all he had made, and it was very good. You get the sense of God taking delight on what he had created, what he had made, taking delight in the work that he had done. In the same way, we are to take delight in our work because properly understood work, all legitimate work, is good. And not only is our work good, the Bible says, it's also a form of worship. This is why Paul writes to the Colossians, and we studied this a few months ago, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. And there he's not talking to pastors and missionaries, uh, people who do quote-unquote sacred work. He's talking to people who just have jobs. People who worked in, in the fields, or people who worked hammering nails. Whatever you do, you're working for the Lord. So Paul wants us to know that not only is our work a gift from God, but our work is an act of worship because we're serving Christ himself. Our work is also a form of serving and loving others. I thought about that this week. Uh, and every morning when I get up, uh, we have sort of the same routine. I have the same routine, very routine-oriented person. Maybe you're like that. But every single morning, the very first thing I do is go downstairs and make coffee. And I have the whole routine about how I do that. Same thing in the same order and all that. But I thought about that this week a little bit. Just that, that simple process that I just take for granted. I thought about, I tried to identify all the different kinds of work, all the different kinds of jobs that someone had to do, people I don't, I don't know, uh, to make my morning coffee routine possible. And I just took a stab at it, okay? Someone had to grow and harvest the beans. Brazil. Vietnam. Do you know Vietnam is the second largest coffee grower in the world? I didn't know that. Uganda. Someone had to pack those beans and ship them off to a factory. Someone ran the machines in the factory that ground those beans into the version of coffee I have in that can. Someone had to design and build those machines. Someone packaged that ground coffee. Someone had to ship that coffee across the ocean. Someone had to drive the truck that delivered that coffee to the store where we bought it. Someone had to design and build my coffee maker. I don't know how to do that. Someone had to make the paper filter. I put the coffee in so that it could go through the water could go through it. Someone designed and built the water system in my town that allows water to come out of my spigot. So you get the point. Hundreds and hundreds of jobs and people doing those jobs, people working so that I can have a cup of coffee in the morning. The Bible teaches that work is the means by which God loves and cares the world, and he does that through us, through our work. And that means that all work, even the most menial task, has great dignity. The late Tim Keller, pastor and theologian, wrote, if God's purpose for your job 
is that you serve the human community, then the way to serve God best is to do the job as well as it can be done. But we know that even though our work is from God and our work is good, the Bible is also clear that our work has been cursed by sin. We see this in Genesis 3, when God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat from it all the days of your life. We see sin's curse in our work because it, our work can be frustrating. It can be stressful. And depending on the job, it can be dangerous or even painful. The U.S. Department of Labor reports that up to 83% of American workers suffer from stress. And 54% of them say that stress impacts their home life. Work is fallen. And because we are fallen creatures and because our work has been cursed by sin, we also can see work as an idol in our lives. We can allow work to become an idol. And work becomes an idol when it takes the place of God in our hearts. That is, when we give our work the devotion that belongs only to God, work becomes an altar on which we sacrifice our families, our marriages, and maybe even our health. And when we see work as only a means to wealth or status, we turn it into an idol. So work is good, work matters to God, but our work is not God. That's the first thing. The second thing Proverbs tells us is that the sluggard fails to work. Um, years ago, I was uh, listening to the radio, and I heard uh, there was a show I'd listened to frequently, uh, and on it, every now and then, they would uh, have a segment called Tales of Laziness. And guys, mostly men, would call in with their own personal tale of laziness. The one I remember was a guy who said he was watching TV one night, and he needed the, wanted to change the channel. But the remote was halfway across the room, and he was too lazy to get up and walk across the room to get the remote, so he took off his shoe and threw it at the TV trying to hit the button to change the channel on the TV, and he shattered his TV screen. So. But that reminded me of my own tale of laziness during my single days, uh, well before I got married. I was living by myself, and I made all my own meals, and I only made about three things. I made uh, spaghetti, and I made hamburgers, and I made grilled uh, macaroni and cheese. But I would cook a lot of hamburger meat, and I would, I would use the same pans to do that because I was living by myself. I saw no reason to clean everything up until everything was used. And so I would cook the hamburger meat, grill it up, brown it for spaghetti, and I just, I, rather than clean up the grease in the pan, which is kind of a pain, I would just leave it in the pan. And then I could cook the burgers in the, in the, in the grease and just leave it in because it's all the same. So then one night, I wanted to make popcorn. And I thought to myself, I don't, have, I don't have any of that, you know, the oil you pour in. Oh, I got the pan with all the grease in it. That'll probably work. So I heated it up, put the popcorn in there, and it popped like magic. It popped right up. It was amazing. It, it did taste a little bit like hamburger. <laughs> and so when I would have friends come over, I would make them popcorn, and they would go, man, this popcorn is really good. Well, where did you get this popcorn? I said, it's a secret. So you have no Proverbs says, go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. Now, sluggard is one of the great words of the Bible. And many translations translate the, the Hebrew word as sluggard. 
There are some other translations. Uh, lazy one is what the word actually means. It occurs 17 times in the book of Proverbs and almost nowhere else in the Bible, but 17 times. Lazy one, it means sluggish or the slothful person. The New Living Translation says, you lazy bones. The Christian Standard Bible says, you slacker. I had an old football coach who would have said, you lollygagger. Don't be a lollygagger. Well, if work is participating in God's care for the world, then a sluggard is one who refuses to care. A sluggard is one who refuses to love. Interesting fact, right now in America, there are about 10 million job openings in America right now, and about, only about 6 million people who are unemployed. So we have more jobs available than there are people to work those jobs, and yet only 62% of the eligible workforce in America is actually working. Which, which, which means there are almost one, I had to look this up three times to make sure it was, I was right, almost 100 million Americans who are eligible for and able to work are not working and are not looking for a job. It's called the Great Resignation. And there are a lot of factors involved here. COVID was a huge factor, and there are lots of reasons why people choose not to look for work. But one of those reasons is simply not wanting to work. Now, some of you, I'm sure, have heard of the seven deadly sins. Uh, they were collected by a pope named Pope Gregory the, uh, the First in 600 A.D. And I wonder if you could recite what the seven deadly sins are. Pride, greed, wrath, envy, gluttony, lust, and sloth. Now, sloth is another great word that we don't use very often. Sloth can be defined, and I love this definition, sloth can be defined as the absence of interest or habitual disinclination to exertion. Okay, let me say that again. It's the habitual disinclination to exertion, or exactly what happens to me when I don't see the dishwasher needs to be unloaded, right? It's a disinclination for exertion. Can I get an amen, guys? Anybody out there? <laughs> Proverbs says, gives us several descriptions of the sluggard. First, the sluggard is slow to start. Proverbs 26 says, as a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. It's a great analogy. My younger brother, Joe, who's a pastor in Ohio, when he was in about middle school, uh, he went through a period of time where he struggled to get up in the morning. That's weird because he's a morning person now but this may be why. He struggled to wake up in the morning, and so my father, who was a relentlessly happy morning person his whole life, uh, found ingenious ways to wake my little brother up. One time he took, his, took the tuba that my brother played in middle school band, put the bell over his head. <laughs> my dad thought this was funny. And it blew in it and woke him up. Terrified him. Another time he soaked a washcloth in freezing cold water and just tossed it onto his bare back. Splat! My brother has, and that's why my brother's a morning person to this day. <laughs> but my father did not want any sluggards in his house. The proverb is saying that one mark of a sluggard is procrastination, what we would call procrastination, slow to get started. Uh, recent research shows that on average, American workers spend a little over two hours a day procrastinating. Two hours a day out of an eight-hour workday. And interestingly, men spend uh, waste about three hours a day. Women only waste about two hours a day. This is probably not surprising. In fact, some 20% of the population are what are called cro cro chronic procrastinators. 
Now, there, there are several reasons for procrastination. For example, there can be just sheer laziness. You know, why do today what you can put off till tomorrow? You know, you just don't want to do it. There can be fear of fatigue or exhaustion, which is a legitimate reason to not do today what you can do tomorrow. You're exhausted. Or I think a big reason is fear. I think fear lies behind a lot of procrastination. Fear of failure. Fear of discomfort. Some of you, I've talked about list making. I make lists every week. And if I notice the same thing showing up on list week after week after week and doesn't get crossed off, if I'm honest and take a look at that thing, that whatever it is, there's usually something about that thing that I'm uncomfortable about or I'm fearful about. Until I confront that fear, I cannot get off, uh, get off jump and start doing that, that piece of work. Secondly, the sluggard is easily distracted. Proverbs 12 says, Those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies have no sense. This is the student who spends hours on social media instead of doing their homework. This is the employee who plays video games on their computer instead of doing their work. This is the pastor who sits down to work on a sermon and ends up watching sports highlights for an hour. Not that I would know anyone like that. Thirdly, the sluggard makes excuses. Proverbs 22 says, The sluggard says, There's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the public square. I think this is a great example of ancient biblical humor. It's as if Solomon has asked one of his sons to run out to the market to pick up some milk, and the son says to him, Whoa, 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 Dad, I can't do that. There might be a lion out there. Are you crazy? The sluggard always finds a reason not to work. And finally, the sluggard is bound for poverty. A sluggard is bound for poverty. Proverbs 24 says, I went past the field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of someone who has no sense. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds, and the stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed and learned a lesson from what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. Now, just to be clear, Proverbs is not saying that every lazy person will be poor. It's not saying that. It's not saying that all poor people are lazy. It's not saying that either. It's not even saying that if you work hard, God promises that you'll be rich. It's not what Proverbs is saying at all. Remember, these are principles. It's just saying that in general, hard work will produce good results and sluggardliness will not. So why does Proverbs call out the sluggard so strongly? Why does God's word speak about this? Well, because the sluggard wastes God's gifts. The sluggard is wasting God's gifts. The sluggard is fundamentally selfish. Doesn't generate the energy and passion to care about someone else who their service might help. The sluggard fails to serve and bless others. So God's word calls out the sluggard. That's why Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. The third thing we see in Proverbs is that the wise work diligently. The wise work diligently. 
just a couple of months after I graduated from high school in 1974, our family moved uh, from a small town about 40 miles north of New York City all the way down to Orlando, Florida. My dad took a different uh, church job. And my parents had always moved themselves each time they'd had to move, but this time, uh, because uh, we had lived in that home for like nine years, uh, they hired a moving company to move all our stuff from New York to Florida, like 1,200 miles. And a couple of weeks later, when my mom and dad finally got to Florida, I was already off at college, and after the moving company finished moving all the stuff, all the furniture, all the items into the new house, my mom went to the refrigerator, opened it up, and noticed there was a single egg in the little egg holder thing all wrapped up in paper to protect it. They had moved the egg, a single egg that she had forgotten to take out of the refrigerator, a thousand miles all the way to Florida, and it was still intact. I always thought that would make a great TV commercial for a moving company, wouldn't it? Because that's a good moving company. That's a job well done. Proverbs 10 says, Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. He who gathers crops in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. So what is diligence? The Hebrew word translated diligence here can also mean, and this is interesting, it can mean a sharp cutting tool, like for harvest, or it can be used for fine gold. So it's describing a person who's both efficient and effective at the job, and therefore is of great value. The diligent person is one who is careful and persistent in their work, who can be trusted to do a job well, to move an egg from New York to Florida. The diligent person understands that work honors God by sharing in his purpose in the world. I saw a story just this week um, about President uh, John F. Kennedy. It was just a short while after he had announced to the nation that um, the program for America to land a man on the moon. And sometime after that, he was visiting the new headquarters of NASA, and he was uh, being given a tour, and he walked by a custodian who was pushing a broom. And he stopped by to speak to the man, and he said, so what is it you do here? And the custodian looked up at him and said, I'm helping send a man to the moon. He said, so a wise, diligent person understands their work is connected to God's work in the world. The wise and diligent person also works to provide. To provide. Proverbs 6 says, go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer, no ruler. Yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. So just as the ant gathers food and then stores it for a long winter, the wise work to provide now and to secure or plan for the future. And then thirdly, the diligent or wise work in order to share with others. Proverbs 21 says, The craving of a sluggard will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. All day long he craves for more, but the righteous give without sparing. If you think about it, generosity, what we talked about right in the middle of the service with the Cure Project, but generosity is always the byproduct of diligent work. Those who do not work cannot be generous. Those who do work diligently can be generous. And finally, the wise are bound for wealth. Where the sluggard is bound for poverty, the wise are bound for wealth. Proverbs 10 says, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Okay, so going back to the question I asked in the beginning, I asked how many of you are retired from your career or from the job uh, that you were paid to do. Many of you raise your hands. A lot of people think I'm retired. I'm not, but they think I am. A um, couple things. Uh, the Bible only mentions retirement one time. Did you know that? 
Only talks about it one time. Way back in the book of Numbers, when the Lord is giving Moses instructions for the Levitical priests, Numbers chapter 8, we read, The Lord said to Moses, This applies to the Levites. Men 25 years old or more shall come to take part in the work at the tent of meeting. But at the age of 50, they must retire from their regular service and work no longer. We have no idea why that's in there. It doesn't say. Maybe it's to ensure that the older priest always trained up their replacements. Maybe that was why. Don't know. Other than that, the Bible says nothing about retirement. And I think that's a good thing. Here's why. Because God sees work as more than our jobs, as more than the careers we are paid to do. God sees it as more. Remember our definition. Work is participating with God in his care for the world. So even if we've long since retired from the workforce, that means we have work to do. We've God-given, God-ordained, God-designed work to do. When we care for our neighbor by stopping by to visit them when they're sick or to see how they're doing, when we take a plate of cookies to a new neighbor, when we give someone a ride to the doctor or give them a ride to church, we're doing the work of, of, our, of the Lord. When we pray, as we did today, we're participating in God, with God in his care for the world and those he created. When we give, we are enabling the work of God in his kingdom. This is why Paul says in Ephesians, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now make no mistake, we are saved only by the work of Christ. That's the gospel. You can contribute nothing to your salvation. He's done that work for you, but he gives us work to do. And here's an amazing thought. This is where I'm going to wrap the whole thing up. A glorious thought. An overwhelming thought. And here it is. There seems to be, in the New Testament, a connection between our work now and the work God has planned for us in the new heaven and new earth. Did you know that? Listen to Revelation chapter 22. No longer will there be any curse. Okay, talking about the new heaven and new earth, what we call heaven. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Do you see that? There's a mythology going around in our culture, and often I think even in the church, that heaven is going to be like sitting around on clouds uh, with halos and harps and rainbows and unicorns, and that's what we'll do all the time. That's not how the Bible talks about heaven at all. Heaven is not going to be an endless church service. The new heaven and new earth will be the redemption of all things. The redemption of all creation. The redemption of our bodies will be given new spiritual bodies, whatever that means. And the redemption of our work. He says we will serve him. We will reign with him. So we will have work to do, only work without the curse of sin, work without the fatigue, work without the frustration, work without the pain, work that is fully joyful and fully satisfying, work that is pure worship. 
We see a hint of this, I think, in one of Jesus' most famous parables, the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. At the end of that parable, it's a story Jesus is telling to make a spiritual point, when uh, the workers and the servants who had invested the talents and made more talents, and that was money, the master called them in. The master says, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, let me pause there. We hear that a lot at Christian funerals and memorial services for believers. Well done, good and faithful servants. But I want you to hear the next line that comes from Jesus. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. You have been faithful with the little I've given you now. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I think Jesus has things planned for us that we can't even begin to imagine. An adventure, a working for him and with him. I don't know exactly what it means. But we will serve and work with a kind of glorious joy. And we will reign and serve with our king forever. And that is a promise. Would you bow with me as we close? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom we find in your word, for inviting us into the work you're doing in the world. Remind us that our work matters to you. Remind us that what we do in our careers matters to you. That what we do in retirement matters to you. And that even now, we're being prepared and trained for the glorious work and service you've planned for us since the beginning of time in your eternal kingdom. And with these things we pray in your name. Amen. Receive today's benediction. May we go now in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who finished the work of our salvation, that we may share in his work in the world. Amen. Have a great day.